Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number. You want to be a part of the program? 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Glad to have you with me this morning. Uh, I I want to begin with, with something I haven't done in a while, and I, I think it is important to do this. Uh, the COVID-19 uh, count. And the reason I say I want to do this uh, in ways I haven't in a while is, is you know, that there's good news on the horizon and there's so much pessimistic news right now and so much fear mongering in the press. So many parents are scared. So many teachers are scared. Let me give you this data. Uh, Georgia is now trending downward on daily reporting, uh, even with testing. Uh, the number of confirmed cases on daily uh, daily test report is down. Uh, more importantly, based on the date of onset, uh, the the date of onset has rapidly declined. I'm, I want to focus on the average now, the seven day moving average, and not the total case count because the seven day moving average peak was on uh, July 11th at 4,194.3 cases. That, that's the average. The 70 moving average peak was on July 11th. Uh, we end the seven-day moving average. Remember, there's a 14-day a um, gap on how they calculate it, and the reason being is because there tends to be a two-week lag in the virus. There tends to be a two-week lag in, in death. So the 14-day the, um, the window really ends now on July 23rd. The peak, let me give you the number again, 4,194. And where we are now in the moving average, 2,609. I can go out to last week, or actually to the beginning of this week, to August 20th and tell you that right now it's at 1,445. That number will go up some, but there is a pretty steady decline in the number of cases in Georgia uh, statewide. Now, one of the areas being hard hit is southeast Georgia right now. Actually, a line that runs from Washington and Jefferson County uh, just to the southeast of Bibb, uh, or actually, now I guess almost due east of Bibb, um, right by Milledgeville, Washington and Jefferson County. And if you go down uh, southeast, in a line through Emanuel County, Toombs County, Appling County, Wayne County, uh, all the way down to Charlton County, uh, down there on the Florida line, you have a huge outbreak there per capita. Now, it's not a ton of cases. For example, in Washington County, which is uh, right next to Baldwin County, where Milledgeville is, uh, south of Hancock County, uh, south of I-20 there, You've got 194 cases in the last two weeks and two deaths there. Where if you go over to Bibb County, you've got 955 cases in the last two weeks. So 194 cases in Washington County and 955 cases in Bibb County. Bibb County is Macon, center of the state. And and I'm using these in, in uh, juxtaposition to each other because Washington County is only, it's a short drive from Bibb County. It's maybe a 45-minute drive from Bibb County to get into Washington County, uh, and Bibb County being the center of the state. So 955 in Bibb, 194 in Washington. The reason that Washington County's outbreak is worse than Bibb County is because of the fewer number of people who live there. So per capita, cases per 100,000 people, there are 955 cases 
in Washington County in the last two weeks per 100,000 people. In Bibb County, it's only 627. Now, you go up to Jones County, which is Gray, Georgia. It is right next to Bibb County, and you're down to 304 cases per 100,000 people in the last two weeks. Go up to Jasper County, the Monticello area. That is 232 cases per 100,000 people. Now, let's jump up to Fulton County. Fulton County, that's Atlanta, only 341 cases per 100,000 people. Now, total, that's 3,750 cases in the last two weeks. But per capita, you need to understand per capita is for every 100,000 people, how many cases, it breaks down to 341. You go up to Forsyth County, it's 199 cases per 100,000 people. Let's jump over to Floyd County. Floyd County is 422 cases per 100,000 people. Compare that to Whitfield County up on the North Georgia line, 854 cases per 100,000 people right now. Uh, let's do let's do Dade County, 185 cases per 100,000 people. And my favorite county, Habersham County, 419 cases per 100,000 people in the last two weeks. Only 192 cases total in the last two weeks there. Still a lot, but let's hop over to White County, right next to Habersham. Only 74 cases in the last two weeks, 233 people per 100,000. Rabin County, 382 cases for every 100,000 people, only an actual total of 65. So this explosion in southeast Georgia, there's an anomaly up in Whitfield County right, right on the Tennessee line. But there's really, there's a very strong line. Now, by the way, you can text the word data to 33777. If, if you got your cell phone with you, uh, type in the number you want to text to, to is 33777, and then send the word data. And the second link you'll get is to the Georgia Department of Public Health where you can see this data for yourself. And there's this long line of red down in southeast Georgia. Uh, Evans County, Jeff Davis County, Washington County, Jefferson County, Wayne County, Appling County, Charlton County, and then uh, right on the Florida line in the southwest Georgia, Decatur County, Seminole County, Miller County. Now, why are the, those those are huge hotspots? But now let's keep in perspective. Per capita, they're very bad, but they're very rural counties. So, for example, Seminole County down on the Florida line, only 94 cases in the last two weeks. In Miller County, 500, or, or I'm sorry, Miller County, 55 cases in the last two weeks. Now, Decatur County, 283 in the last two weeks. Now, for perspective here, just so you've got a sense of what we're talking about here, um, you, you're down, you're talking about the Bainbridge area. And that, uh, it, that area is being hard hit by the virus. Bainbridge is, is just getting slammed. But then you go over to Seminole County, you got Lake Seminole. It's a swampy, lakey area there. Keep that in mind. It is not exactly well populated. There are only 94 cases, but that's 1,155 cases per 100,000 people is what it works out to be. Now, I've been saying, why is that? Why is that? I actually have the answer for you. Farm migrant workers. There are in these areas, this is a heavy agriculture area. It is uh, poultry production. It is crops. It is agriculture. And 
the virus is making waves in the black community and the white community, but overwhelmingly down there now, it has a lot to do with migrant workers, younger migrant workers. It has become significant in that area, and it has a lot to do with the communal living in those areas of the migrant workers, that they're all living together. And those sorts of things matter when you're looking at the virus, when you're looking at race, when you're looking at the spread, overwhelmingly, it is um, it is a fairly good divide between male and female, mostly male, 51% male. Now, when it comes in terms of total cases, more white people than black people in the state are getting it. But there's a very large unknown population of people getting it, and that tends to be uh, Hispanic in migrant worker communities that are living communally. To his credit, to his credit, I know a lot of people want to bash the governor. You reopened too soon. You you didn't mandate mass statewide, what have you. To his credit, the governor has understood this as a problem and has gotten together a coalition of ministers, business people, and governmental leaders who speak Spanish, and they're going into these communities, and they're being very proactive. It's very much like what happened in Gainesville. If you'll remember up in Gainesville, there was the poultry plant up in Gainesville, and they had a huge outbreak at the poultry plant in Gainesville, and they sent in uh, Spanish-speaking ministers and businessmen and and others with some uh, credibility in that community and spoke to them in their native language and explained what they needed to do. And it fixed the situation up in Hall County, uh, rapidly improved the situation in Hall County. That's what you need to know. It is, uh, in my mind, a very important statistical issue that is not getting enough attention and needs to. we, we need to be attentive to it. Um, so when we see these the major explosions happening around the state, what we've absolutely got to pay attention to is in these rural areas, migrant workers, but then it jumps from migrant workers into grocery stores and restaurants and the like. It then spreads into the greater part of the community. This is not a, a slam on migrant workers. Please don't hear me say that. This is the reality of what we're dealing with. And those of you who live in those counties, and and I'm on a number of stations in these counties, be mindful of this issue. And if you work in agriculture in those areas, please, please do what you can to help the governor out and and spread the word within the, the migrant worker community that the steps they need to take to be safe. In some parts of the state, uh, we are still having uh, viral spread in churches. It continues to be a concern across the nation. But all of that is to say, we're actually headed in the right direction. We are significantly headed in the right direction. Uh, we, we are headed, I mean, we have a dramatic decline right now. Do we know what's going to happen with schools fully reopened in the state? We, we really don't. There's a lot of speculation. If you're a school administrator listening right now, before I go to commercial break, let me just talk to school administrators for just a minute. One thing you need to emphasize to, to parents, if you're a school administrator, 
if their child gets a COVID-19 test, do not send their child to school until the test results come back. Uh, the situation in Cherokee County, now I've heard now from several people up there, if you hadn't heard, school started after the very first day of school, a second grader tested positive for COVID-19. They had to quarantine that classroom, shut down that classroom. The teacher and the kids in that classroom had to be home for the next two weeks. It's been disruptive. And a lot of people, why did that kid come to school? Here's, here's what I'm told very reliably is that the child got the COVID-19 test before school started and did not get the results back until the end of the day on that uh, first school day. So if you're an administrator, tell all your parents, if your kid has a COVID-19 test, please keep them home until you get the results. We're not going to penalize them. Let them stay home until you get the results. Also, if your child even hints at not feeling well, don't send them to school. Don't go back to work. This is vitally important that if your child even hints at not feeling well, keep them home. Don't mask the symptoms with Tylenol or or aspirin or Benadryl or, or anything. Don't send your kid to school. Number three, this is really important. School administrators, listen to me, please. This is highly important. This will be the most important thing that I tell you. At the end of every class, regardless of your mask policy, at the end of every class, before your students enter the hallway at the end of every class, tell them to put a mask on. I know there are a lot of you who don't think it's a big deal, that it's overstated, or that they're a problem. I'm, I'm just telling you, please, for the love of all that is godly and holy on planet Earth, before you let your kids crowd into the hallway at school, have them all put masks on. If you're a school administrator, don't make it optional. Do that. You don't have to make them wear it in a classroom if they're spread out in a classroom. If they're washing their hands regularly, encourage if any, any parents want to know homeopathic things they can do, zinc supplements, stuff like that, go for it. But in the hallways, make them wear masks. You can thank me later. I, I got asked, so listener Greg emails. And he says, since you started with virus talk, can can you cleanse our pla- palate with some bourbon or food talk? <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, I can. I got asked by a listener yesterday what, what my favorite bourbons were. So I, I, I feel I should share with you guys here at, at 924 in the morning, man. The, the way 2020 is going, I feel like I should be spiking my coffee every morning anyway. But then I wouldn't be functional on here. So uh, favorite bourbons uh, uh, to, to answer listener questions. Uh, you know, my, my regular go-to these days is Basil Hayden, which is a, a, a great one. Uh, but I'm a big fan of Jefferson Reserve. Uh, and I, I don't like all of the Jefferson Oceans. I kind of think it's gimmicky. But if you can find Voyage 19, it's the weeded one. It's very, very good. Uh, and then a, a buddy of mine recommended McKenna. Now, you need to be careful here because there are two McKennas. There's a, a regular McKenna, which is kind of, it's not my favorite. I won't say it's trash. It's just not my favorite. Um, but there's a 10-year McKenna. They're kind of hard to find. Uh, McKenna, M-C-K-E-N-N-A. McKenna 10-year bourbon. Now, it is stronger than your average bourbon. It, it's got some, here's the problem with it, actually, is it doesn't have kick, and that's the problem, is that you don't realize it until you're like, you finish in the glass, you're like, I could have one more, then Bam! So you just got to you, you gotta be careful with it. Um, on the food front, now don't you people get ideas that you can just dictate the terms of the show except on Friday, but 
I, I am so tired of talking about the virus. I didn't even intend to start talking about the virus. Uh, but then I, I, I saw the good news coming out and I was like, you know what? We need good news on the viral front. Here's, here's good news. Um, but on the food front, as you guys know, I am a, I have gotten myself a rec tech smoker. It is a pellet grill and I have for years avoided pellet grills. Uh, and it is solely out of pride and arrogance. Now, what, what do I mean by that? I love my big green egg. I have had a big green egg for probably 12 years. I, I think I'm actually about to put it on, on Facebook and sell it. Uh, I mean, I've got the table. The table probably needs to be replaced, but I got it. And, and I got all the parts. I've got the little computerized fan, all of that. I love my big green egg. But at this point, I just want something easy. And I started researching pellet uh, grills. Now, a pellet grill is somewhat misleading. I know some of you will grill on a pellet grill. I know it. I know you'll do it, but they don't really get hot enough to sear a steak. And you can buy little attachments and leave them going for an hour, and they get up to enough temperature. The thing I like about the Rectech, I got a Rectech. They're made in Augusta. Uh, They get hotter than a Traeger. They get lower in heat than a Traeger. Uh, They hold temperature better than a Traeger, and uh, they're built better than a Traeger. Now, both of them are manufactured in China. Uh, The difference is, well, in Traeger over time, the powder coating, it starts to flake off, and and it, it falls apart quicker. Uh, the Rectech, the pieces are manufactured, but it's actually put together. You actually probably will put it together yourself, but uh, the steel is a better quality steel. The build is better. They make all of their electronics in this country. They put everything together in this country uh, electronically, and so your computer parts aren't going to fail. Uh, it, it is a well-built machine. If you want an easy pellet grill to use, a Rectech. Now, they've changed their name. It was R-E-T, uh, R-E-C-T-E-C. And they've changed it to R-E-C-T-E-Q. We're like, what's the deal? They did this last week, or they did this actually at the beginning of this week. They changed everything to Rectech. Um, and, and the reason they changed it and got rid of the last C and changed it to a Q is, is patent and trademark stuff. They want to expand beyond just smokers and get into other, uh, other like coolers and stuff like that, lifestyle branding stuff for the great outdoors. And there's already a brand out there that they could be confused with and they got into lawsuit trouble it sounds like and so they had to change their name which is fine i mean r-e-t or r-e-c-t-e-c versus r-e-c-t-e-q i mean it's all about the barbecue anyway so the q seems very fitting uh in fact ray one of the founders said it had he had he even thought of the q at the end considering it was a barbecue device he would go with it to begin with i i gotta tell you i'm a fan of it um for smoking and and i love my big green egg it holds temperature well, and you can get it up to a thousand degrees if you want to do a pizza, you want to do anything. But I've got a professional grill. It's called a DCS. Uh, they're not common in this country. It's a New Zealand company. Fisher Past uh, uh, Fisher Pikel is the name of the overall company. They make ovens and, and they make kitchen stuff. They're mostly in New Zealand. But they make a grill, and the thing that sets them apart is you know on a lot of high end grills, grills now there's a sear burner. And so you've got one burner with a ceramic burner, and it gets incredibly hot, and you can sear a steak and then move it off. With the uh, uh, with the the um, with the Fisher Pikel grill that I have, the DCS grill, it has hollow ceramic tubes that sit on the flames, and those hollow ceramic tubes capture all the heat, and it gets so hot across where you can sear a steak. I've gotten my grill up to about 1300 degrees across the entire frame of the grill before. And you can, if you're, if you want to do like really good quick steaks, you throw that sucker on, you can get it seared. And I got to be honest with you. 
I never use my grill on high unless I'm searing a steak. I never use it on high. I don't even like have one half of it on high and the rest of it turn off. The other great thing is it's got a 50-pound rotisserie, so I can do a bunch of chickens or turkey and stuff. So in any event, um, that's why I don't I don't worry about using my big green egg for this stuff. I got a professional grill for it and can use the Rectech just for smoking, and it is a fantastic smoker. It really is. Y'all should check them out if you want a pellet grill. All right, now I can I can get to the stuff that I wanted to get to at the beginning of the show. <laughs> You know, some days the news requires me to deviate from what I want to do out of the gate. Well, now I can get to what I wanted to do because I still think this is relevant and important, uh, particularly as we get closer and closer to the election. Journalists in Washington, D.C. have long been accused of living in a beltway bubble, isolated from the broader public, talking too much to each other. The interactions on Twitter, however, show them congregating in even smaller micro bubbles. Now, this is from the Illinois News Bureau. Greg Chamberlain, Uh, and there is a new study out. Uh, It is a study by uh, Nikki Usher and Yee Man Margaret Wynn uh, raising additional concerns about vulnerability to groupthink and blind spots. The professors are journalism professors at the University of Illinois, and they identified nine clusters of journalists or communities of practice in their study published online by the journal Social Media and Society. Uh, Their elite legacy cluster was the largest. It included 30% of the journalists covered in the study, uh, with the Washington Post, NBC News, NPR, New York Times among the major newsrooms represented. A congressional journalism cluster had another 20%. The other cluster centered around CNN, television producers, local political news, regulatory journalists, foreign affairs, long-form enterprise reporting, and social issues. In leading the study, Professor Russell said she wanted to describe the contours of what political journalism in Washington looked like and of the process of making news unfold. Twitter seems an ideal way to do that, given its unique role among journalists as a virtual water cooler, the professor said. Most of the time, what happens on Twitter does not reflect the real world. But in the case of political journalism and political elite, generally speaking, what happens on Twitter is reality. So this was a particular potent way of looking at scale and how ideas are exchanged, how people are making sense of things. With more than 2,000 journalists in the study, We could not observe each of them individually in real life, so we used their digital life as a way to understand how they interact with their peers. They collected tweets, retweets, and replies posted on accounts over a two-month period in 2018 using Twitter's application programming interface, their API. They winnowed those further down to those only sent between or referencing other Beltway journalists. That meant 133,529 Twitter posts from 2,051 journalists, about one-third of all credentialed congressional correspondents. And guess what? The large elite legacy cluster, with some of the most influential news media prominently represented, was among the most insular. More than 68% of the cluster members' Twitter interactions with other journalists were within the same group. That also may mean that they're not engaging in the same kind of way with the people who are actually on the ground getting those sorts of scoops. They're not engaging with the journalists who are the policy wonks. I was also really intrigued, one of the professors said, to see that there was a television producer cluster where Fox was in the mix with ABC and CBS, which might explain why we tend to see a lot of the same faces on TV news programs. One cluster was labeled CNN, 
because more than half its members were CNN journalists and much of the conversation related to network stories and personalities, which the professors found problematic. CNN is telling a story about what is happening with CNN and that is worrisome. Maybe it's an organizational branding strategy, but I think it potentially has deleterious effects for public discourse. In the opposite direction, the professors were encouraged to see a space in the long-form enterprise cluster where journalists are doing deep, thoughtful dives and exchange ideas. Otherwise, their findings add to concerns about journalists on Twitter. Political journalists in D.C. are people who tend to use Twitter all day. And so the question is, what does that do to how they think about the world? And generally, from this paper and previous ones the professors did on gender and beltway journalism, it seems that it can make things worse. I can tell you this from my own experience, that one of the benefits of Twitter, and I I, I actually think Twitter is a net negative for the world. I, I really do. One of the benefits of it, though, is that we can now see reporters' bias displayed uh, much more accurately. It is fascinating to me, for example, some of the very reporters who ridiculed Mitt Romney in 2012 for claiming that Russia was a was a threat to the nation and, and praising Obama for his line about the 1980s called and, and they want their foreign policy back uh, are, are the people who are now lining up to to essentially hump Joe Biden's leg and 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 that of his his vice president, it, it, it's fascinating watching that partisanship take place. They were clearly wrong about it. Uh, they trashed Mitt Romney for it, and then they were like Russians stole the election, and now they're rushing to get in Joe Biden's good graces. It is amazing the revelation of how. Li- I mean, you always suspected every single one of us always suspected that much of the media leaned left, and now we see just how much it does lean left. But not only do we see just how much it leans left, we see just how much contempt they have for people who are not like them. And you know, ironically, that tends to undermine trust in people, trust in the media. Well, I shouldn't say ironically, it just does. But ironically, what it does is it actually makes the media even more partisan. See, it was one thing when... We all knew they were liberal, but you couldn't really put your finger on it. Now you can. You can look at their tweets and clearly see these people hate conservatives. They hate Christians. They hate Republicans. Uh, all they want to do is go work for Joe Biden. And now that we can see it and they know we can see it, they're like, well, let's. who cares about even trying to be fair anymore? We don't need fairness anymore. We just need, need to, to be honest with who we are. And so it drives even more partisanship, which drives even more distrust of the media. That's what's going on here. It is a terribly insular bubble, uh, and we're seeing people uh, close up their minds, and, and it's not just reporters who are closing up their minds now. It's other people. When you see the media approach, you're like, well, I'm not going to listen to them on anything. It reminds me of the pickup truck. A, a friend of mine on Twitter, and he's an Internet friend. We've never met in person that I know of, but he's a good guy. And after the 2016 election, he had the audacity. I mean, it was it made people mad. Y'all, you you can't appreciate how mad it made members of the press. All he did was ask a simple question. How many of you in the press, particularly the Washington Press Corps, know someone who owns a pickup truck? How many of you in the Washington Press Corps know someone who owns a pickup truck. You would have thought 
he had asked the Washington press corps, when did they stop beating their wives? The reaction was vocal, swift, and angry. Here was his point, and it's a valid point to this day. You know the three best-selling vehicles in America? The Ford F-150, the Chevy Silverado, and the Dodge Ram pickup truck. Those are the three best-selling vehicles sold in America. In fact, for the first time, the pickup truck now outranks cars as the best-selling type of vehicle in the country. It had been pickup truck, car, SUV, minivan, and now it is, or I'm sorry, it had been car, pickup truck, SUV, minivan, and now it is pickup truck, car, SUV, minivan. But the three best-selling vehicles in America have been for a long time now, uh, the Ford F-150, the Chevy Silverado, and the Dodge Ram pickup truck. As a matter of fact, I've got a neighbor right here. I can see out my window. Uh, two people in the household have F-150s. Neighbor right across the street has a Chevy Silverado. The neighbor up the street has an F-150. And the neighbor through my backyard uh, has a Dodge Ram pickup truck. And members of the media overwhelmingly don't know people who own pickup trucks. So, I mean, just just put this in perspective. In the Washington Press Corps, the people who cover Washington and try to explain how Washington, D.C. relates to you don't actually relate to you. They're insular. They talk to themselves. They're, they're not engaged. And by the way, this is not a left-right criticism. This is a, a criticism of media as a whole. They have become so insular and so in a bubble, they don't relate to the rest of the world. They uh, You're... you're Average national correspondent for a major political outlet in New York or Washington does not own anyone who owns a pickup truck, even though they're the most popular vehicles in America. Many of them don't own vehicles because they live in New York or Washington and they can take the metro, so they can take a bus, they can take a subway, they can take an Uber, they can take a taxi. They don't relate to the rest of the country. And that's part of the problem. You know, one thing CNN did very well that they have gotten away from and, and I think was a strategic long-term mistake for CNN is regardless of their faults as a network, CNN was headquartered in Atlanta. It was anchored in Atlanta. Its teams were based in Atlanta. And they did a very good job of trying to relate to people. As more and more of CNN offloaded to Washington and New York and increasingly everything to New York, CNN relates less well, I think, to people in flyover country. And, and I, I don't mean flyover country pejoratively. I remember when, when Bill Shine, who was then the executive vice president of Fox News, was trying to convince me I should come to Fox instead of to CNN, that he pulled out a map of the nation. And he drew lines around both coasts and then a little line in, in the middle of North Carolina. He said the reason Fox is number one is that CNN and MSNBC fight over the left coast and the right, the west coast and the east coast. And MSNBC is slightly ahead of CNN because they have college towns like uh, the Raleigh-Durham area. But Fox News is number one because it covers everybody else. Fox News, for all of its faults as a network, and there are many, pays attention to what people within a hundred miles of an American river valley think and care about CNN and MSNBC, particularly now that CNN has largely left uh, the Southeast and, and Atlanta and moved everything to New York city. CNN is fixated on what people within 50 miles of the coast think MSNBC has always cared about what people within 50 miles of a coast think people who would live within 50 miles of a coast tend to be overwhelmingly uh, more liberal 
uh, more progressive, more secular, uh, less religious. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, going up the coast. But when you think about the, the major uh, population centers, whether it's Chicago, which is on a coast of, of a Great Lake, New York, Boston, uh, Baltimore, Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco, that, that is where these media outlets care about, particularly the Washington to New York corridor within 50 miles of the coast. That's what they care about. Fox News cares about what people who live within 100 miles of the Mississippi, the Allegheny, the Monongahela, the Missouri, uh, the Arkansas, the Red, you name it, uh, the Colorado, what they care about. Fox actually focuses on that sort of stuff. And that's why they're number one. Uh, you, you know, Bill Shine, when he was talking to me about this, uh, and this has been several years ago, but it still holds up today. Uh, you hardly ever will hear Fox News talk about the Emmys, the Grammys, or the Oscars unless they're poking fun at what happened. On CNN and MSNBC, they take the Oscars, the Grammys, and the Emmys very seriously, and they cover it extensively. And the reason Fox News doesn't do it is because, frankly, uh, most Americans outside of the coast now uh, think that Hollywood holds them in contempt, and so they don't pay attention to it, so Fox doesn't pay attention to it. Pretty straightforward. The American media overwhelmingly now exists in a bubble in the Washington, New York corridor. And as local media dries up, it's somewhat ironic to see news outlets like the New York Times or the Washington Post and reporters from various TV outlets lament the death of local news. And it actually is a problem. Uh, yeah, you know, we here in middle Georgia, our our newspaper is also is a sister publication to uh, the, the Columbus newspaper, they're both owned by McClatchy, which is going through bankruptcy, uh, which is has really wound down newsrooms around the country, a lot of uh, shared services. And as a result, your town councils and city councils aren't getting covered as much. Your local corruption isn't getting covered as much. Uh, your, your local political campaigns and local elections are not getting uh, covered as much. It allows local officials to fly under the radar and do things they otherwise wouldn't if you had a robust media outlet. And I, I hope, I, I believe that there is a market for local news. In fact, I've talked to several friends of mine who own local papers, actual real, like county papers. And you know, county papers still make money. They don't do great, but they still provide a service, even if it's just a once a week publication. And they, they provide coverage that something like the Make and Telegraph or the Columbus Ledger Inquirer used to, used to do and don't do so much because of cutbacks in the newsroom. These others do. Uh, there, there are universities standing up nonprofits to do this sort of local coverage. And it needs to be done, but they're competing against for-profit outlets like the New York Times that lament the death of local news and then try to fill the vacuum and do it poorly, but then make it more difficult for local news organizations to stand up. And they are completely out of touch with you. They do not understand you. They do not live your life. I've encountered, I mean, even here in Georgia, Georgia Public Broadcasting, I've encountered some of the reporters at Georgia Public Broadcasting, and I'm stunned by how overwhelmingly partisan and activist they are in open. I mean, they, they are, they're hyper-partisan. Is it any wonder, you know, the, the Republicans in the state love the idea of the show that I'm doing in the morning here that you're listening to because it's statewide, so they don't have to deal with Georgia Public Broadcasting because they've hired a bunch of, of left-wing wackadoos to be their reporters. I, I, I genuinely am stunned 
at uh, the number of reporters that Georgia Public Broadcasting has hired that do not relate well to anyone outside of an urban core and, and just drip with disdain and find problems where there are none and misinterpret stuff. My, my favorite was actually a a reporter for Georgia Public Broadcasting who completely misrepresented voting data in the state uh, to to uh, claim that there was some sort of racial bias in voting at a time that uh, African-American voters were dominating voter registration, completely had to skew the data to write a narrative. And in fact, uh, there's another reporter at, at George Public Broadcasting who in his bio says he cares about the narrative. The narrative is a storytelling device where you leave out certain facts to build a story that fits what you want to tell people. When you're worried about the narrative and you're not worried about the truth, you shouldn't be trusted to tell the news. And yet George Public Broadcasting has hired some of these people. And of course, they get government subsidy as well. The media is increasingly a bubble. And you know that gives an advantage to folks like me and this radio program. It gives an advantage to websites like mine, The Resurgent, or even The Drudge Report. Although Drudge, I don't know what's up with Drudge these days. But there are there are fixable things that the media could do. They just won't do them because it would require them to come in contact with average people outside of Washington and New York. And that would be gross to them. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, where, where I, will, will, I, I will connect with you who aren't in the media elite bubble. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Do you want your laugh for the day? I don't know whether it was Charlie or Philip uh, found the story and flagged it for me. <laughs> um Seattle, Washington, this this is just rich. A lawsuit filed Monday against the city of Seattle argues protesters' constitutional rights have been violated by the police department's indiscriminate use of chemical and less lethal crowd control tactics, which have forced demonstrators to buy expensive protection gear in order to safely bring their message against police brutality to the streets. <laughs> this is this is what the, the, the lawyers wrote. Because the Seattle Police Department has acted above and outside the law in dispensing its unbridled force, bridled force, and the city has failed to prevent same, the government effect is to establish a de facto protest tax. Individual protesters subjected to the Seattle Police Department's unabated and indiscriminate violence now must purchase cost-prohibitive gear to withstand munitions, even when peacefully protesting, as a condition to exercising their right to free speech and peaceful assembly. (laughs) Five protesters filed the lawsuit. Oh, good gracious. Um, You know what? How about this? How about don't riot? How about don't burn down small businesses? How about try not to capture a part of the city and declare it an autonomous free zone? Oh, my goodness gracious. Um, Here's the thing. One of the problems with the protesters right now is that the protesters, the protesters who want to be peaceful aren't actually willing to hold accountable those violent miscontents who are stirring up all the trouble. They'd rather bash the police, which which makes them part of the problem, by the way. And, and I want to be real clear here with you. That makes them part of the problem. Um, 
if you're not willing to hold accountable the violent protesters, in fact, yesterday online, uh, there were screenshots of, of several left-wing activists who were uh, attacking the media for daring to cover Antifa violence because it was not beneficial to show Antifa as violent. Never mind that it is. It's not beneficial to their image to do that. So you got to stop. Uh, it just, you know what? Uh, don't be violent. How about that? Don't don't have violent protests, and, and maybe the police won't use tear gas on you. Hmm. Novel concept. Before we get out of here for this hour, man, we're already at the end of the hour, and I still I haven't gotten half the stuff I wanted to get to this hour. Um, this hour is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. First Liberty Building and Loan is a, uh, they're a lending institution. I won't call them a bank. They're a building and loan. They're in Noonan, Georgia. For those of us here in Georgia, they're local to us. For those of you nationwide, you can use them. If you're a business, they have been helping businesses get access to, to capital, sometimes somewhat creatively with bridge loans and the like. Since 1993, they know how to help your business grow. They know how to help your business get access to capital. If you need access to capital, if you need into the PPP program, if they ever renew it, go to firstlibertyga.com. That is their website. FirstLibertyGA.com is the website for First Liberty Building and Loan. They're right here in Georgia. The Frost family, they're good Christian folks. I've known them for years uh, in politics. And uh, they've got this company, and they want to help your business. If your business needs access to loan, uh, needs capital, needs credit, uh, needs into PPP, go to FirstLibertyGA.com. That's the website, FirstLibertyGA.com. Fill it you, for PPP when it's up and going. You can fill out the application online, even. But firstlibertyga.com. Go check them out. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson. Welcome. The phone number you want to be part of the program is what is it? 877 97 Eric. 877-973-7425. Glad to have you with me this hour. Uh we we got we got stuff to talk about. Um, we got a lot of stuff to talk about this hour because last hour I spent so much time talking about stuff that I didn't intend to talk about that, uh, everything had to be put off. So now let us get into the news of the day. Uh, that is, uh, well, there's significant news. The Democrats are really, 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 really upset, uh, that the president of the United States might want to give his acceptance speech, uh, outside of uh, the White House, on the South Lawn of the White House. They are very convinced, in fact, that it would be a bad thing, that it would violate the law, it would, uh, you would not be, uh, you shouldn't use government property to do this sort of stuff. They they are convinced that it is something that is a no-no. They are convinced it is something that would be against the law. They are convinced that whether it's against the law or not, it is unacceptable for the president of the United States to do a political event from the White House. Uh, I'm sorry. I I don't think the president should do it from the White House uh, for a number of reasons. I, I really don't think he should. Uh, and I don't think he should in large part because uh, I think that the president of the United States should avoid connecting his campaign to the swamp and that the president of the United States, by being in Washington, D.C., doing it at the White House, uh, will, in fact, be in some way connected to the swamp. And that would be a bad thing. Uh, I think that if the president of the United States decides that he wants to 
go somewhere else uh, and and give the speech with a beautiful backdrop, go for it. Even if it's a national park, go for it. But I, I think doing it in front of the White House, yes, he's the president. Yes, the president can do it. But I just think that the president needs to go out into America and shouldn't be bogging himself down with the swamp. Uh, he should not be bogging himself down in such a way that uh, makes it look like uh, he is tied to Washington excess. And, and I understand it. It's a powerful backdrop. I understand it. And and I don't buy the left-wing argument. Uh, I, I genuinely don't buy the left-wing argument here. I, I don't think that any of these people who are upset would be upset if Barack Obama or Joe Biden did this. I think that if they did it, uh, you would have even members of the media who are outraged by it right now say, well, it's it's a global pandemic. Where can they go? That They, they, they can't go anywhere. They've got to do it there. There's nowhere else safe for them to do it. They, they must do it there. And I would say if if they did that, you know what? They're entitled to do it. It's their house. I don't think they should do it either, but not because I don't think it's illegal. I don't think it's it's I don't think it's because it's unacceptable. Uh, I I think it's because uh, you you need to go out and you need to connect connect yourself to the United States. I I started. If you weren't here in the last hour, there's a big story out that the uh, American media really is in the bubble we all knew they were in. They become very very insular, and in Washington and New York, major reporters for major outlets do not connect to, relate to, or understand people outside of their bubble. And it's a big deal. It is a big problem. It causes them to skew the news in inappropriate ways. And I think the president needs to come out of that bubble into the heart of America and make his announcement. You know where, if if I were the president, where I would go to make my announcement? Oh, I just thought of this. If I were the president of the United States, I would go to St. Louis, Missouri and do it under the arch. And I would point out how St. Louis's prosecutor went after a couple for defending their private property against the mob. And I, if I were president of the United States, I would say, I'm going to defend you against out-of-control prosecutors who want to punish you for defending your life, liberty, and property. Or, 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 if I really wanted to be creative, I would go to the bridge in Lexington or Concord, the bridge where the first shot of the American Revolution was fired. You know, you can go see this bridge. It's still there. It's been preserved. I think it's actually been remade, but nonetheless, you, you can go see it. And I would go there. And I would make my speech there that, that we come to preserve the founding of the country. We come to defend the founding ideals of this country, that all men are endowed by their creator with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And and make your campaign speech there and make it about America. May, Donald Trump is essentially signaling to people that he is all that stands between them and the mob. So go make it about that. You don't do that in front of the White House. You don't do it on the South Lawn. 
You go to Lexington Concord, you, you stand at the bridge where the first shots of the American Revolution were fired, and you say there is a concerted effort by the left, by the Democrats, by the media to undermine the founding of our country. I mean, I think that would be brilliant. This, listen, let me give my direct advice to the Trump campaign. Let me face my live stream camera. I, I'm, I like this idea that I just thought of. <laughs> of course I do. Go to the bridge where the first shots of the American Revolutionary War were fired. It's there the president could give his speech. Stand on that bridge and give his speech to the American people that we stand at the threshold of a new age in this country where the left would devalue what happened on that bridge. The shot that was heard around the world has been uh, ricocheted back on us by the left, by the media, by the New York Times, by the Democratic Party as something vile to humanity, as something they have revised to say was wrong and should not have happened. And I, the president of the United States, and what stands between you and this revisionist mob that would tear down American history, the, the, the last bastion of great freedoms in this country, uh, on this planet, as you see uh, an ever-emboldened China and dictatorial authoritarian regime spread around the world, and the left in this country continues to side with them and make excuses for them and has reverted to blame America first. It is, all the world's problems are our problems, and I'm here to tell you that's not true. We are the last best hope for mankind. We are the greatest country that ever was. The shots fired here and heard around the world still echo through history as a righteous cause that should be defended. Our founders did a good thing, though deeply flawed. Though the original sin of this country was slavery, they themselves knew and wrote that it must be overcome. And through great bloodshed, Union soldiers rose up, brother against brother, father and son against each other, mother against daughter, family against friend, and fought for the cause of liberty and justice for all. And while we are continued to be a flawed country, we are always a country in advance of improvement. And improvement does not come through the mendacity and dishonesty of tearing down American history and making this a country that it is not by claiming that this country was somehow founded in slavery in ways that are revised to placate the tickled ears of the left-wing, secular, white, rich mob uh, by a left-wing political party held hostage by them. Joe Biden would be held hostage by them. I, the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, intend to defend the cause of liberty in this country and pledge my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor to continue the advancement and improvement of this country for all of us and for the world to be that shining light on the hill where people can come through legal means to seek refuge from tyranny, and we will stand together against both the mob and tyranny. If I were on the Trump camp, that that's the pitch. That is the that is the defining pitch for where we are. It, it transcends everything going on. It ties the American people into the the mind of the sixteen nineteen project garbage. It focuses them on the fact that uh, people want to revise American history and make it something that it's not. That these people are ashamed of American history. They would hold Joe Biden hostage, and uh, that we need to to push back on this, and we need to defend American values, American cause, the American righteousness, and the ideas of the founders that we do pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honors for a cause greater than ourselves, and that cause is the country. The country is not blood and soil. The country, the United States of America, is an idea. It is an ideal that we are always striving to obtain, knowing it will always be just beyond the grasp of our fingertips, but that we should always strive because even though we can never grab hold of it, it is the quest to grab hold of it that makes us better. You do that... 
You get the American people to focus on what's actually going on in this country. You go to Lexington Concord, you stand on that bridge. I forget the name of the bridge. I, I once knew it. Where the shot, they call it the shot heard around the world. To this day, we do not know who fired first. The British or the colonists. We presume it's the colonists, I think. We don't really know. But it was the shot heard around the world. And the 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 media, the left, they're hostile to the very idea of America these days. The pro-communist Chinese coverage in the media should be abhorrent to everyone. And yet the media advances this narrative now constantly. The media now constantly pushes the idea that we are a nation founded in racism and slavery, which isn't true. I mean, we can read the works, not just of the founders, but the average American, we can read the sermons of the pastors in the pulpit, and we know it's not true. The time of the Revolutionary War, they just knew that it had to, it was a terrible issue, but it had to be put off for the greater good of preserving all 13 colonies in common cause against the British, and then we'd have that fight. And boy, did we have that fight. And I think the president should go far, go so far as saying there are people now this to this day who call for reparations. Those reparations were paid in blood at Gettysburg, at Antietam, at other battlefields. There's your reparations. White men laid down their lives so that black men could be free. That's it. My buddy Britt texted me, Old North Bridge is it. Old North Bridge, that's where I'm talking about, Lexington Concord, Old North Bridge. The president should stand there and give the speech. You want reparations? We paid your reparations. We paid your reparations in blood 100 years ago, over 100 years ago. You think this country's founding was bad? What country would you prefer to go to? You regularly, members of the media, are now apologists for a communist Chinese regime that runs concentration camps just because you don't like me. I, I think the president's got a way to do this. I, I think he should do it. He should stand for liberty and freedom. He should make that speech at Old North Bridge where the first shot of the Revolutionary War was fired, and he should galvanize this campaign and make it about was the founding of this country righteous or not. And you know what happens when the president does stuff like that? You have a bunch of people who go overboard, like go over crazy and stuff. And they're going to do that again. They're going to lose their minds over the stuff. They won't be able to help themselves. And the president will be able to take all of their bat poop craziness that they say after he does this and turn it into the campaign ads that are the, the gift that keep on giving for him. It is Eric Erickson here. Welcome. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Glad to have you with me this morning it is morning isn't it yes it is um uh, you know i just the more i think about this I, I love this idea i think that's what the president should do go to old north bridge where the first shots were fired in the revolution don't do it in front of the white house don't don't do it on the south lawn go to old north bridge and you make your case you make your stand there and and you, you focus on the first things. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that our founders knew going into this cause, it was a cause greater than themselves, that this was something that they would have to always be perpetually in pursuit of, always striving for, knowing they would never give it, but they gave us a cause, they gave us a quest, they gave us a mission that they themselves could not fulfill, but set up our nation to be able to fulfill it uh, later. And that we have ultimately always been striving for that, that the the those who would call for reparations in this country uh, need to recognize the fact that that time heals wounds, that this is a slow process, but this is a process that calls us to our better selves. It is a process paid by blood on the battlefields of Lexington and Concord and at uh, Antietam and at, at uh, Gettysburg. And that this is an ongoing quest where now we ourselves strive and make great improvements. We've put men on the moon. We have brought them safely back to the earth. We have done this as a country that puts uh, those who can succeed and are capable ahead of those who are wealthy and connected. We have a meritocracy that we need to get back to. And we need to understand the basic sense of fairness in this country. I'm telling you. I think that's a message. And, you know, uh, so Jane Nordlinger, who writes at National Review, made a really good point, I thought, where he said that what the left understands intrinsically is fairness and that fairness wins out over freedom every time. People don't want to be free. They want a world that is fair. And, you know, Calvin Coolidge, who I think was one of the best presidents ever, once said uh, that the job of the government is to level the playing field, and that's it. You level the playing field so the so David can slay Goliath. And I think the president himself can make that case, that we've gotten away from this idea that in this country David can slay Goliath, that, that the little guy can become the big guy. And we have actually protected wealth with billionaires, and we have structured the government so that the lobbyists have the most influence in Washington, and the lobbyists are hired by the richest people. And I just, I think, I think this is a way forward. I think it's a path for the government. I think it's something that the government himself, uh, that the president himself should consider. Uh, let's go to the phones. Uh, Ken. You're going to be up first. Welcome. Hello, Eric. Good Hi there. You. Thank you. Uh, I'm a historian. So I might, I have a degree in history. President Trump should give his speech from Yorktown. Oh, that's a good idea, too. It's very close to Washington, D.C. The transportation wouldn't be a problem there. But That's the thing about not... it is, for American history, a lot of people don't know that there are many free blacks that fought in the Revolutionary War. It was an integrated army. And yeah, and, and I mean, the first man to die in the cause was Crispus Attucks, the black man. Exactly. That was the start of the founding of the country. Yeah, but, you know... I, Ken, I like this idea. York, Yorktown it is. Um, if if not the – and, you know, a, a buddy of mine is texting me while you're talking, Ken, and saying that he's been to Old North Bridge. There's not enough room. Uh, you wouldn't be able to stage it the way – Yorktown, you could do that. Um, Ken, listen, I, I appreciate it very much. Um, so, so Ken calls from – he's actually calling from Kentucky. And Ken says Yorktown. That's that's actually a really good idea. 
here the British gave up their claim to this nation that we could pick up our claim to a better future. Oh, man, you, you, the words write themselves. I'm kind of excited by it. I don't think they'll go for it, but I think they should. I, I think that would be an awesome idea. Go to Yorktown. Here the British surrendered, and we picked up our destiny and carried it ourselves forward, unbeholden to a king and a foreign power across the sea. And we have done with this country great and mighty things. We have put a man on the moon and brought him safely back to earth. We have inspired generations of people to rise up for freedom for their own causes. We have carried the, the, the flag of the home of the free and the land of the brave. Man, you could make a killer speech out of that. What a way to reset. And you know, Biden wants to do his from home in Delaware. Biden's not going to go to the Democratic Convention. Trump's got a, man, he's got a path forward in this. You, you could do this. I, I'm kind of excited by the idea to even think of it. I mean, think of the way he could completely reset his campaign and make it about defending America. You've got the protesters here. And the polling, by the way, you can tell the Democrats are concerned and you can tell the Democrats are concerned because they've started denouncing the protests. The Democrats haven't denounced the protests in, in two months. They've only started denouncing the protests, I think, because the protesters are starting to freak out the American public. The president could galvanize people with this. The president could galvanize people with this, and he could win re-election on this. I hope someone at the White House is listening. I guess I know what my email is going to have to be today to get their attention because I know they read it. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, the phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is uh, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, let's go, uh, to the phones, to John in Rome. You're going to be next. John, welcome. Hey, Eric. I really like your, uh, bridge theme, but I was thinking in light of the coronavirus, the president should introduce, uh, his speech, maybe in the Rose Gardner in the Oval Office at the White House. And then he ought to pre-record, uh, to, to kind of build on your idea, uh, a, video at the North Bridge, like you said, kind of basing things on talking about the history and wanting to to keep that history. And then he ought to pre-record something at the Golden Gate Bridge out in California on the West Coast, talking about how we have this need to, to rebuild infrastructure and, and, and other things like this. And then he ought to pre-record one more spot back at the bridge in Selma, and uh, kind of steal the Democrats' thunder and talk about the unity that we need and, and defeating this uh, this problem that we have with racism and all that kind of stuff. And then his final plug, <laughs> John, I, I'm I'm sorry, I'm, I'm laughing. Now. Can you imagine the reaction of the Democrats if he stood on the bridge in Selma and? and <laughs> Right. But wait, but, but wait, it gets, be it gets better. The, the last thing, it gets better. Yes, you're exactly right. That's, that's the whole point. But at the very end of his speech, then he puts in a plug to, to steal their thunder and to, to say we need to rename this the John Lewis Memorial Bridge. And that would be the, the kind of the, the end of his speech. Man, okay. So the president would actually win re-election just because all of the Democrats would have heart attacks and strokes and, and just be done. Um, that, Absolutely. 
heads would explode. So many heads would explode. There wouldn't be any Democrats left. Um, John, okay. Here, there's one flaw with your plan, though. One flaw. He's got to do it live. If the president doesn't do it live, one, it's going to leak ahead of time, and the media is going to be so sensationalized with it that they're going to cover it entirely and not actually run the speech. See, if if, if a speech is pre-recorded, then the media is going to interpret that as there's no uh, there there's no timeliness to it. If if he could record it, um, if the president if if he does it in a way that is live, if he picks one of those venues and does it live. Uh, then the media's got to cover it because it's, it's way more newsworthy than, than the pre-recorded. Plus, he would have to dance between. It would be a bigger production deal. But, yeah, I mean, man, if he went to the bridge. and I mean, there are all sorts of venues. I think he should focus on revolutionary landmarks, uh, Yorktown or Old North Bridge, or, or even go to Gettysburg and say these people demand reparations. Uh, here lie your reparations. Uh, it is soaked into the soil here in the form of blood. Uh, we are a more perfect union because of those who laid down their lives here in this field to uh, advance the idea that all men, regardless of race, are created equal. And we still have a ways to go, but we are continually in pursuit of the better tomorrow that our founders told us would come. Uh, a, a, a sun rising, not setting over this nation, as Ben Franklin said. There are so many ways for the president to be able to do this to be able to make it about the cause, to be able to make it about America, to be able to make it about the founding and the inherent goodness of this country at a time where the media seeks to discredit it. And, and you know, I suspect uh, he's got, you, you know, so let me tell you something that Democrats are actually nervous about. They're actually nervous about the number of black voters in this country who aren't excited about Joe Biden. But you know what they're really nervous about? the number of Hispanic voters who like Donald Trump. Here's a secret you don't don't hear in the media. The longer, and this, by the way, this is why I think the Republicans at some point are going to have to find paths forward on the immigration issue where some of them are uncomfortable to go. I'm not saying amnesty, but I, I, I got some thinking on this and I'll share with you. Some of you won't like it, but just hear me out here. The longer a Hispanic family stays in this country, the more likely they are to identify, particularly if they're of a a, a Protestant background, which if you're from Central America, uh, increasingly uh, you have Protestant, particularly Pentecostalism as a background for, for immigrants, even illegal immigrants into this country. The longer you stay here, the more likely you are to identify as white and Republican. Think about that for a minute. Let, let, let me offer up a, a compromise that I think the president and the Republicans should pursue. Let's talk about grandma, Hispanic grandma. She illegally came here in the 1980s with her kids who are also illegal aliens. Uh, her kids are now grown and have kids of their own who are American citizens. What do we do? I think with grandma and the parents, you say you get to stay. You'll never become a citizen. You'll never have the right to vote, but you never have to worry about leaving the country or being deported. And uh, let's focus on those who came here with toddlers and the toddlers are now college age. They call them the dreamers, the, the DACA kids. 
to do that with their parents as well, that that the kid came here as a one or two year old. They've never actually left the country, even though they're an illegal alien, uh, because they came here as, as a one or two year old and the family's never left. The parents are illegal and working. And, and you say, you know what? You parents, you're never going to become an American citizen. Like Moses getting to the promised land, you're never going to cross over into the promised land of citizenship. But we're going to take care of you. You've contributed to this country, and you never have to leave. Your kids will cross over into that promised land of citizenship. They know no other land. They've never been to their native land, even though they're not an American citizen. But we'll allow them to become citizens. And those of you, grandmom and parent, if you want to become an American citizen, here's what we're going to ask of you. Go back to your country from whence you came and go through a process that for you we will expedite and we'll get you back here but you got to leave and you, and you got to go get in line and you got to fill all the paperwork uh, but if you don't want to you'll have you'll have resident alien status you'll never be able to vote but you'll have resident alien status and you won't have to worry about deportation now you do that and suddenly you, you've established yourselves as one uh, you're dealing with the problem two you're not adding a new pool of voters into the country and three you're making sure you acquire taxation, and all these people, by and large, I think, if, if they've committed felonies, stuff like that, they, they can't. Uh, they, most of them have paid, believe it or not, most of them actually have paid taxes, uh, but if they haven't, then they're going to have to pay fines, and they're going to have to pay uh, an estimate on taxes, stuff like that. But there's ways to do this that don't just give blanket citizen to a bu- citizenship to a bunch of people who broke the law. You don't want to reward them to a degree, and, and, and I realize there's an argument that you are if you're letting them stay in this country, but the fact of the matter is there isn't an appetite nationally to round them all up and deport them. You're not going to find them all, and you're not going to be able to have uh, taxpayer resources consumed by it. So what, what you are, you're a Republican. You're a Donald Trump hates Mexicans. Uh, that's how the media says, and here comes Donald Trump to say to them, you know what? You get to stay. You can't become a citizen, but you're going to get to stay. And your kids can become citizens, and I am your president, and you are my people. That would drive. In fact, he should use that rhetoric. I am your president, and you are my people. That would cause all those heads to explode. It's like standing on the bridge. If he were to give his campaign announcement, standing on the bridge in Selma. I mean, the, the, uh, the these people. You would have you would have a toilet paper shortage again because of what would be happening to the Democrat stomachs. Um, it, 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 this would be impressive. This is something they could do. And, you know, this relates to polling out there that black Americans, it turns out, don't actually like the defund the police movement. This entire show seems seems interconnected with, with that opening bit on how reporters are in a bubble. It's like Latinx. You've heard the phrase Latinx. 3% of America uses Latinx. It is overwhelmingly used by left-wing political leaders and academics. It is not used in the Hispanic community. And by the way, the Hispanic community tends to tends to use the word Hispanic more than Latino outside of Southern California. The rest of the country uses Hispanic. Southern California, they'll use Latino. Um, most of them actually use Hispanic. None of them use Latinx, and yet you have white people uh, white liberals talk about Latinx all the time. No one knows who the heck a Latinx person is. Is that like a Kleenex? No idea. But the media is in this bubble, and, and you've got uh, Hispanic voters in this country and black voters in this country who depend on the police for safety in their community, and the left is out there now saying, no, we're going to defund it all. Do you know the, the amount of crime that has skyrocketed in this country as a result? 
particularly in uh, black and Hispanic communities, crime is skyrocketing. And it's because these left-wing agitators, uh, who are all typically millennial white kids, want to defund the police and the politicians held captive to those people are out there attacking them. The, the, the politicians uh, are, are undermining the police. The politicians are indicting police officers uh, needlessly. This is like Paul Howard. Paul Howard, the uh, the DA in Atlanta. By the way, there's breaking news. Paul Howard, the district attorney, up for re-election. He's been fined by the State Ethics Commission for failing to disclose a job with a nonprofit. You will remember he's under investigation still by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. He created a nonprofit. He put himself in charge of it. He got the city of Atlanta to fund hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars to it, and then he didn't tell anyone he was actually in charge of it and drawing a salary. He supplemented his salary by creating a nonprofit that drew its money exclusively from the the taxpayers of the city of Atlanta, and he could very well be indicted for this as well. And this is a this is a this is a, a big issue. This this is a this is a a real and serious issue where these politicians are so woke now, hijacked by secular millennial skinny jeans wearing flannel shirt wearing left wing hipster white kids who still live with their parents. And it turns out black and Hispanic voters don't like the idea. And, and this is this is an I don't know that Donald Trump is the guy to do it, but like Nixon going to China, maybe Donald Trump is the one to do it. There's a case to be made to black and Hispanic voters who are sympathetic to the Democratic Party right now that that's not really the party for you because that's the party of uh, rich, white, secular atheists. They hate your God. They want to call you Latinx and they want to take the police away from your communities. And also, uh, they want your kids to be stuck in sorry educational institutions where uh, these white people have decided that learning proper grammar that will help your kid get ahead in life is racist. So they're not going to teach your kid how to get ahead in life uh, because they're so worried about feeling good about themselves. They're denying your kid a good education. I'm telling you, education is the key for the GOP moving forward. Uh, The left always focuses on fairness. You know what's not fair? What's not fair is the rich people get to send their kids to private school and teachers unions get to block you from sending your kid to private school. And the left-wing solution is to shut down the private schools. You will never shut down the rich person's private school where they send their kid. But you should be able to open the doors to those schools to your poor black and, and Hispanic child. And there are ways to do that through government programs and government grants and and private opportunity scholarships like Georgia has. Uh, There should be paths forward for uh, the black and Hispanic community in this country to be able to do that. And it's the left standing in the way. The Republican Party has a path forward on these issues. The Republican Party has a path forward to make the case to black and Hispanic voters, but it will take something that the Republican Party probably doesn't have my silence is teasing you the republican party lacks something that it needs to make this case to black and hispanic voters it lacks a leader with the discipline to focus on that message if the president could focus on that message, he could have a winning campaign. Y'all, the show's not over. 
but the fat lady is clear in her throat getting ready to sing. Early voting starts in a few weeks. The president of the United States needs to get a move on here. He needs to get some focus. And these are the defining themes of our times, the defense of this country's founding and the opportunity for betterment in this country and fairness in a system where David should be allowed to take out Goliath. But yet we live in a country where the elite, regardless of party, prop up Goliath and give him government subsidy and government protection so David can never challenge him. If the president can make those his themes and make it across party, make it across ideology, transcend the barriers of rhetoric on this issue, the president has a winning message and he can build a coalition that is bigger than his 2016 coalition, but he's got to have discipline and he's got to have the courage to do it. He's got to have the courage to go after the rich in this country, not from the democratic vantage point of we need socialism, but from the vantage point of they have spent a lot of lobbyist dollars to build up and implement systems by which it becomes very hard to dethrone them. It becomes very hard to disrupt them, but there are ways to do this if the Republicans will engage. You know, we're speaking about the American founding and American history and how the president should defend it. I am a, I'm a big believer in our Second Amendment. In fact, I went the other day, I've got a buddy of mine who was a soldier in Israel for a while. He's in this country now. He actually works for the Israeli government. And we went to a gun range the other night and it was awesome. And I'll, I'll tell you what I liked about it, it what stood out to me. And I, I realize a lot of you will think this is a silly point, but we were the only um, white people at the gun range. And in every single instance, there was um, the first two. Now, it was every other lane was closed off, but the first lane was, was uh, a couple, male and female. The, the second lane was a couple, male and female. The, the third lane w- was us two white dudes. Uh, the, the, the third lane was four girls. And, and then the fifth lane was four girls. Uh, all of them were black. They were in their target practicing. Uh, they, they were in their practice. It, it, I thought that was great. You know, so often the media focuses on it's just a bunch of old rednecks who were who were Second Amendment supporters. No, here we're, we were the only two white people at the gun range, and it was people, they were enjoying each other's company. They were having a good time. They were practicing their skills. They were practicing their Second Amendment rights, and it was awesome. And interestingly enough, we know that the um, – we know – that the president uh, wants to focus on the Second Amendment. And we also know that every month in this year, starting in March, has broken the record for gun sales. July, we now know, was the uh, biggest month for gun sales. And we now know that overwhelmingly the people buying the guns are African-American. Black gun owners are the largest growing portion of gun owners in this country because as people want to defund the police, they, they got to protect themselves. In fact, you know, my wife and I, so I, I've mentioned my wife and I are going to a gun program in December. Uh, Archon Ready is the group. Uh, it's a bunch of uh, former special operators in the military 
and they now go around the country. They teach SWAT teams and the like gun safety skills. They're doing one the first weekend in December here, the fifth and sixth, like $500 a person. We paid for it. Um, and, and I, if you want to go text data to three, three, seven, 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 there's a link where you can check them out, but we got to buy a bunch of ammo. We got to have 550 rounds each of nine millimeter ammunition. And I'm having a hard time finding ammo. I got to go find, I got to find, uh, what, 1100, 1200 rounds of, of just nine millimeter, uh, between my wife and me between now and the first weekend of December. It's, it's ammunition is hard. I went to this gun range the other day and you can't get in. Uh, you can't go in and buy ammo unless you're going to the gun range that they're, they're restricting sales of it. It's crazy. Um, but you can get great guns out there right now. And, and this is perfect time for me to tell you about true precision. One of our great sponsors, true dash precision.com is their website. True dash precision.com. Now true precision doesn't manufacture guns. What they do is they provide improved upgrades for your existing gun. If you go to true dash precision.com and you check out their website, you'll see your slides, they can do barrels, they've got trigger upgrades, they can work with you on improvements to your existing handgun. I actually went through them and built the Glock 43X with them, and the slide is a camo pattern, it's just solid. The barrel is is great, uh, the grip, the sights. We haven't done the trigger yet, I intend to do the trigger. Uh, I really am a customer of theirs, and it was money well paid, money well spent. I love this gun. We were at the gun range the other night, and all the women who were in there, they're like, ooh, what, what is that? Where'd you get that gun? I was sitting of true precision, baby. Go go check them out. I mean, people were like, like, where, what is this gun? I was like, well, it's, it's actually a Glock. It's my 43X. It's my concealed carry, but you can go to true-precision.com and, and upgrade your own gun. And, and I think I sent them some business the other night at the gun range. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you want to be a part of the program, you can also check me out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, E.W. Erickson, E-W-E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. I have mentioned, I mentioned in the last hour, uh, Archon Ready, they are a group of former special operators within the military. Uh, they, they're awesome. And they have some of the best gun programs in the country, and their gun programs are focused on uh, SWAT teams, police, first responders, that sort of thing. But when they go into a community to do those sorts of trainings, they also do a uh, two days they set aside, if they can, if, if a range is available, for, uh, for civilians. And it's $500 a person. They're doing one outside of Atlanta. South River Gun Club, I think it is. I've never been there. Uh, several of my friends know it. And they said it's a great facility. Um, my wife and I, we signed up for it. This isn't an ad. They're not sponsoring the program or anything. It's just we're doing it. And I know some of you feel strongly about the Second Amendment as well and may want to do it. Uh, it's a two-day course. Uh, the first day is handgun. The second day is rifle. And you'll have to bring your ammunition. You'll have to bring your guns, stuff like that. Uh, but if you're interested in doing it, I, I have heard amazing things. I didn't realize a buddy of mine is connected to him until after we signed up for it. And, and he saw our name and, and reached out. And uh, it's apparently amazing training. Again, it, it is focused on SWAT teams, but they also do some just amazing civilian training. And if you want to go, uh, I'll send you, if you just want to check them out, if you're interested, because they, they rarely swing through this part of the country, 
Uh, they got a headquarters out in Vegas. So you can go out there and do training with them. Uh, but the the text the word data D A T A to three three seven seven seven. Text the word data to three three seven seven seven, and I'll send you back a link to their Atlanta registration page so you can see what they're about. Uh, and again, this isn't an ad. I just, I know you guys, uh, you, you like the second amendment as much as I do and everybody could always use more training and we signed up for it and wanted to make it, let you guys know that it was coming. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited to go do this for, I, I have heard from, from like NRA instructors and folks who have gone through the program that it is, it, they, they've got more trainers per, per student than your typical gun program and they go in depth into the fundamentals to explain why things are the way they are, how you do certain things. And so it's highly educational and challenging for everybody. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you, um, you, you, if you're interested, you'll go check them out. Text data to three, three, seven, 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 eight. Now let me, let me get into stuff and my apologies. To those of you who may be outside of Georgia, this is going to be very Georgia-centric right now. Uh, and um, it, it, the the Georgia centricity of this is, I got to cover some of the things that uh, Brian Kemp has signed into law here in Georgia because they're deeply relevant to the conversations going on right now. You will recall one of the big issues was the police and whether or not first responders should be part of the hate crimes legislation. And Republicans voted initially to make first responders part of the hate crimes legislation. And Democrats said it should not be about occupation and class. It should be, it should not be about occupation. It should be about um, the attributes of individuals. And as a result of this, they they pushed very hard, the Democrats did, to strip it out. And so the Republicans agreed to strip out first responders from the hate crimes legislation after initially putting it in and then passed separate legislation that increases penalties for attacks on first responders. If you harass or attack a first responder, uh, punishment will be more severe. And, you know, it's very much – I've noticed this pattern – with the media and the Democrats in Georgia, particularly when it comes to RIFRA, let, let me let me jump from the one to the other real quick, just so you get a sense of what I'm talking about. RIFRA is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It was passed in the 1990s because of a, an Antonin Scalia decision in the Supreme Court that I think Scalia to this day, I think it, he got it wrong. Scalia essentially said that when it comes to the First Amendment, you have to have a compelling governmental reason to essentially infringe on the First Amendment. And the compelling governmental reason, uh, it's called strict scrutiny in constitutional law, uh, and it is almost impossible to meet that standard. But Scalia, in this decision in the 1990s, it was a decision about a, a guy who smoked peyote, uh, which is a hallucinogenic, um, it is used in some Native American rituals, and he uh, was using it for a Native American ritual. It's not in dispute, uh, but he failed a drug test, I believe, if I got the fact pattern right, and he lost his job, and he sued, saying it was First Amendment issue. And Scalia essentially said that uh, the, the uh, freedom to exercise is the one provision of the First Amendment uh, that strict scrutiny doesn't apply to. 
if the government has a a reasonable basis for uh, infringing your your free exercise and it is a basis that would apply to everything else then you're allowed to so if the government for example this is this goes to the Nevada situation that the Supreme Court dealt with 2 weeks ago that if you are shutting down everything based on capacity and you shut down churches as well that uh, the church can't say first amendment because the church is being treated like everyone else i think the supreme court got the decision wrong and and essentially what the supreme court said is that um churches don't have the the monitoring by the state that casinos do so casinos can hold more people based on size churches are limited to 50 people i think they got it wrong but uh, nonetheless you, you get the idea here um so what Congress did is they passed RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and RIFRA says that no, in fact, you must hold any infringement by the government of someone's free exercise of religion must be held to a strict scrutiny standard. There must be, the government must find a way to do what they want to do without impacting religion. And uh, Scalia and the Supreme Court then when when RIFRA was passed said, well, RIFRA only applies to the federal government. This is a congressional statute. It cannot apply to the states. So states subsequently passed RIFRA and 30 states, including California, passed versions of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Georgia was one of the states that did not. And the argument by Democrats at the time in the 1990s was that Georgia is never going to infringe your religious rights. Georgia is never going to infringe your religious liberty. Therefore, Georgia doesn't need to pass RIFRA. Well, over time, as the nations become more secular, we see more and more of the government infringing. The Hobby Lobby case, for example, was decided on RIFRA. The Little Sisters of the Poor case was decided on RIFRA, not on the First Amendment, but on RIFRA. There are, it looks like maybe five members of the Supreme Court who want to reverse that and now uh, apply strict scrutiny to the Free Exercise Clause, but they haven't gotten a case yet on that point. One may be coming this year. So in Georgia, now conservatives would like RIFRA passed. Uh, To be clear here, RIFRA would not apply to the situation of a gay person wanting a Christian baker to bake their cake and and the the baker sues or or the, the gay person sues when the baker says no. RIFRA does not apply in those situations. RIFRA only applies when the state demands of a religious enterprise that they do something uh, that violates their religious faith. It doesn't apply to private contracts. But whenever RIFRA comes up in the legislature, gay rights activists in the state rush out and tell the media that this would allow discrimination by uh, against gay people. If you pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, it would allow discrimination against gay people. My personal preference, and this will make people mad at me, is so what? I know people who are gay who refuse to eat at Chick-fil-A. They discriminate against Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A is a Christian-founded organization. It closes on Sunday. It, 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 it purportedly takes Christian values seriously. I know people who won't eat there because they think it's a bigoted institution. They discriminate against Chick-fil-A. I think if there's a baker who says, you know what, it's my religious practice says I can't bake a cake for you because I don't support gay marriage because marriage is between a man and a woman, there are plenty of other bakers to go to. In the same way, if uh, you want a Catholic adoption agency that only adopts to heterosexual married couples, there are plenty of other adoption agencies to go to. Just don't go to that one. 
I think it is fundamentally different. Uh, gay rights are fundamentally different from civil rights because uh, you do not need a sticker on the back of your car, or a rainbow sticker on the back of your car to tell people you're black or even Hispanic. Um, it, you, you cannot look at a person generally and say, oh, that person's gay. It's a fundamental difference. And I think consequently, it, it is inapt to apply it, uh, compare uh, gay rights to the civil rights era of, of the 1950s and 60s. In any event, what happens when RIFRA is is attempted in the state is you have a bunch of uh, left-wing progressives who denounce it and say it'll allow discrimination, even though it won't, that it'll infringe private contract rights, even though it won't, and the media dutifully reports all of that without any skepticism. Now, that was a tangent off to RIFRA to get back to this police protection bill because the Democrats in Georgia who do that with RIFRA are doing the same freaking thing now. Uh, the AJC ran a story yesterday. The governor needed to either sign or veto this police protection legislation yesterday. And the the Democrats dutifully trotted out. People said, oh, well, if they do this, it's going to increase the ability of the police to be brutal with, with citizens. If they do this, it's actually going to undermine protections for police. If they do this, it's actually going to make it harder to send someone to jail if they engage in violence against police. And, and they just threw it out there. This is a, the Democrats say these are the bad things that actually it'll hurt the police if you pass this. Well, actually, some of them said it and others said, oh, no, it'll be it'll increase police brutality. And it was all designed to pressure the governor to veto the legislation. He didn't. He signed it into law. And now those very same Democrats who yesterday were saying, if you do this, it's actually going to make it harder to prosecute people who commit violence on the police. Today are out saying, oh, the police are going to be more violent now. They're going to be emboldened to to, to, to police brutality. Uh, they, they can't make up their mind. And, and the media dutifully reports what the Democrats say without any level of outside skepticism. They, they don't go to any any legal experts and say, well, actually, no, this is true. It, it, it actually uh, will do this, not that, very much like with RIFRA. Um, now, now, granted, there are legal experts on the left who will say, I mean, yeah, you, you can put their hand up their backside, move their mouth like a Muppet, and they'll say whatever they want to say and lie about RIFRA, but, but it is widely accepted. And in fact, there's a whole laundry list of, of court precedents that RIFRA, based on the language George was going to use, does certain things and doesn't do other things. And, and they won't cover that accurately. They wouldn't cover this police legislation accurately. But the governor stood up to them and signed it. The governor stood up to the left, stood up to the bellyaching Democrats in the, in the legislature and the police activists out there. And he signed this legislation. And this is good legislation. And you need to understand, if, if you know, if you have access to the governor's office, if you're listening to the state of Georgia right now, you need to tell the governor, thank you for doing this, because there was an organized effort to pressure him to veto this for a variety of reasons. And he stood up to the mob and he stood up for police and he signed the legislation. And, you know, we should be th- whether you like Governor Kemp or not. I personally like the guy very much. But what I really appreciate is that he is unwilling to let the mob bully him. When he thinks he's doing something right, he stands up for it, and he really doesn't care about what the polling says. He goes for it, and that's the sort of leader you need. By the way, uh, the governor of the great state of Georgia has also signed liability protection for businesses, and that includes private schools when it comes to the virus. 
uh, if someone comes to your business and they believe that they got the virus from being at your business, they're not going to be able to sue you, which gives relief to a lot of restaurants and private schools right now who have been struggling with what to do because of our litigious society. Uh, it is Eric Erickson here. If you're listening, the phone number, if you want to call in and be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, I, I want to spend just a couple of more minutes on this issue of liability protection because there, there's been very mixed messaging even in Washington. Mitch McConnell is insistent on giving liability protection to businesses nationally at the federal level to protect them if they uh, choose to reopen right now. There are a lot of major businesses, a lot of uh, grocery stores and department stores and the like that are worried about getting sued. Then, you know, part of the problem here is that uh, very typically, I mean, here's what would happen. Someone comes to your, let's say, let's use a restaurant as an example. Someone comes to your restaurant. A week later, they develop COVID symptoms and they read in the paper that someone who worked at your restaurant has had COVID-19. So without any proof, they sue you claiming that the person who worked at your restaurant clearly must have infected them. They can't really prove it. They don't really know, but they've connected it. I I will tell you, so I I had a, a doctor's appointment yesterday. And by the way, the, the, the doctor I saw, he's, he is, uh, become a believer in masks because he um, encountered a patient who had COVID-19, had active symptoms of it, uh, and uh, the guy was breathing all over him, but the doctor was wearing his mask and, and didn't get the virus. Uh, and and is just a total now a believer, just the three, he wasn't even wearing N95, just a three-ply mask. He said it actually is, is fairly easy to avoid getting it uh, by wearing a good mask. And uh, But he was saying that uh, he has had a couple of people come to him in his office, and they flat out have no idea how the people got the virus. And, and I've now encountered a couple of people like that who they took every precaution they could think of. They limited their time in public. They went to the grocery stores at odd hours when there weren't lots of crowds. They wore Some of them wore gloves, some of them wore masks, and they don't know how they got it. Now, separately from the doctor I saw yesterday, I was talking to a doctor in his speculation is that it is, it's a sanitation issue for them, particularly if you're wearing gloves. And he, he the, the reason I bring this up is because a lot of people are wearing gloves in public now, latex gloves and whatnot. And the doctor I was talking to, not, not my doctor, I went to a different one I was talking to late yesterday because I was talking to him about this conversation I had with my doctor where they, they got people, they can't figure out where they got the virus and they did. And what this doctor was telling me, and I thought it was an interesting point, is he said it's very much like at fast food restaurants or, or you go to a, a sandwich shop where they're wearing plastic gloves to, to make your food. Watch them, and they will be completely unaware of how they're using their hands with the gloves. And, in fact, to some degree, he says they can make it more unsanitary. You wear a glove. You get your, your hands all over stuff with these gloves. You don't realize it because it alters the, the tactile feel in your hand. And then you take the gloves off or you scratch your face or something. You don't even think about it. And, and it's it's the virus is on the glove. And you haven't washed your hands in the gloves. You take the glove off to wash your hand. Uh, and, and his point, this doctor I was talking to said he is actually dissuading. He's encouraging patients to wear masks. And he's actively discouraging them from wearing gloves in public.
And the reason he's actively discouraging the glove wearing is because he says they let their guard down too much with a glove, not with a mask, because a mask is very awkward when you breathe. People don't like it. it you, some people think it's uncomfortable. But with the, the glove, you get used to it and, and you your tactile approach changes. You get comfortable, you wipe your eye or something, and the virus is going to linger more there than in the oils of your hand. And if you don't have the glove on, you've got a higher propensity of washing your hands regularly. If you're wearing the gloves, you're going to lower the amount of time you're washing your hands. And so he wants people to wear masks and not gloves uh, and just step up the amount of washing of hands. It is interesting, though. Now, I, I've encountered more and more people who have the, gotten the virus and have absolutely no idea where they got it. And that's why it's good that the governor signed the liability protection. Because you go out to your local restaurant that you love, and a week later you've got symptoms of the virus, and then you find out someone who worked in the restaurant, whether the who was working in the restaurant while you were there, they've got the virus, you're immediately going to think it's the restaurant. And some of you are litigious, and you're going to go sue the restaurant for not protecting you, and that restaurant needs protection because you can't really prove that that's where you got the virus, and yet you're going to have a bunch of trial lawyers try, and it's going to drive up costs for these local businesses. So good for the governor doing that. He's also playing hardball with the gut with the mayor of Atlanta. The governor wants a special session of the legislature to deal with tax revenue issues. One of those tax revenue issues happens to be two dead mayors international airport in Atlanta, Georgia. The governor last year was opposed to the legislature taking over control of the airport. It is the economic engine of the state. The state should control it as a result of it being the economic engine for the state. It should not be in the hands of the mayor. The city of Atlanta City Council, by the way, has no oversight. It's all the mayor. Uh, And so the governor now wants to look at this issue. And I suspect it has everything to do with leverage in negotiations with the city of Atlanta in this lawsuit over the virus. I I don't actually think he really wants government control, but they're going to increase oversight of it. And that may be enough to get the mayor of Atlanta to back down on some of her demands in this lawsuit as well. Hardball tactics by Governor Kemp. You, you got to appreciate it. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-8. What? <laughs> I'm multitasking, which is bad. 877-973-7425. Uh, I, I want you guys to do me a favor. If you live in the Habersham County area, uh, you've got a runoff on Tuesday. Yes, believe it or not, there is an election still. There is a runoff. And in the Habersham County area, you are State Senate District 50. And I, I'm I'm throwing myself into that uh, race uh, largely because uh, Stacy Hall is running. And I hope that you'll consider supporting him. Uh, he's he is a good guy, and I, I just I think that he will not be a yes man, and I worry, given the pedigree of his Republican opponent, uh, that that his opponent would be a yes man uh, for all the leadership ills that we have as problems in our legislature, and we need someone who's an independent thinker on the Republican side who's willing to stand up and actually think for his county and not be bullied by leadership into doing certain things. Uh, and and I think that Stacey Hall is the guy to do that. I, I think that Stacey Hall is the person who will stand up and be his own man and will be thoughtful for your values and uh, your area. Uh, I, I think that he is a guy who is going to be thoughtfully conservative. 
that he is going to be someone who will uh, essentially uh, take what John Wilkinson did, who's the current incumbent who left to run for Congress, uh, and will actually uh, be even more to the right there and will stand up for your values and principles. And he's not going to be pressured and cajoled into doing certain things uh, by by leadership. And I think uh, when you look at him and when you look at his opponent and you see who is uh, backing him versus his opponent with Stacey Hall, you find someone who uh, is going to march to a conservative beat. And I still think that conservatism and the Republican Party are not the same thing, uh, that they live in symbiotic relationship. Uh, but one is an intellectual movement, and we need people who are thoughtfully conservative in our legislature to tell the Republicans, uh, slow down here, fellas. Uh, you, this this isn't the right thing to do, nor is it actually principally of the right. And Stacey Hall is going to do that. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm hijacking my own show to make a pitch for those of you there uh, to do that and to support Stacey Hall. Some of you want to know about the the the, the Gertler Andrew Clyde race. That race has gotten nasty. Uh, I am I don't know Andrew Clyde. I, I do not know him. I know Clyde's Armory. Uh, I am a big fan of Clyde's Armory, and I I think he has a story to tell. I will not say a bad word about him, and will not let anyone come on this program and attack him. But I'm supporting Matt Gertler. I'm supporting Matt Gertler because Matt Gertler has a track record. Uh, very much like Stacy Hall does, uh, Matt Gertler has a track record, and Matt Gertler's track record is of a conservative, of someone who's willing to defy his leadership, to stand up to his own side and tell them they're doing it wrong. And we have a lot of yes men we send to Washington, D.C. We have a number of our members of Congress who are yes men for leaders in Congress. And I want someone who's not a yes man. I want someone who actually has a history of standing up for his own side. And I think that's Matt Gertler. Now, I'm going to be careful in what I say here because I, 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 I don't want anyone. And we got some folks on hold. Be patient. I'll get to your phone call. I, I'm going to I, I, I want to tread carefully on the John Cowan, Marjorie Taylor Greene race uh, because I have a lot of friends who are supporting Marjorie Taylor Greene and they have pressured me for months and months to endorse her. And I can't bring myself to endorse her and have largely stayed out of the race. Uh, I thought Kevin Cook would have been the best choice because he had a record of being a conservative in the legislature and standing up to his own side. Uh, he did not make the runoff. If I were in northwest Georgia, so the, the Gertler-Clyde race is northeast Georgia, uh, replacing Doug Collins. This is the northwest Georgia seat of Tom Graves. I would vote for John Cowan. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a very nice person who has a paper trail that is disturbing to a lot of people. Uh, and I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene, while she would be a very good conservative congresswoman, she will become a poster child for all that is wrong with the Republican Party. And not just Republican group, or not just outside media groups, but Republican groups, I think, will use her to embarrass the president and other Republicans. Um, her, whether it's the QAnon stuff or some of her other uh, statements that she's made over the years, I, I think she, if whoever wins this race is going to win. Uh, I, I do not think that the Democrats will be able to define either of these candidates in such a way as to beat them. Uh, but the odds certainly go up with Marjorie Taylor Greene, given the copious amount of opposition research uh, that would be out there. 
Uh, if you vote for John Cowan, the Republicans will win the seat and the Republicans will have to spend less money there to defend that seat when that money is best spent in other parts of the country defending Republican seats. Uh, if Marjorie Taylor Greene wins, then Republicans will have to spend money on that seat. They'll win it, but they'll have to spend money to insure it. And every dollar counts this time. And we need to minimize the amount of money that's being spent uh, in Georgia races in Republican districts to defend Republican strongholds uh, because we've got candidates who are on record, on video, and, and on the Internet saying all sorts of outrageous things. Uh, John Cowan's not going to embarrass the people of Northwest Georgia, and I'm afraid uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene can. And, and I'm, I, I say that lightly because I, I have a lot of friends who are supporting her, and they all have my cell phone, and they're going to be livid at me. But I want that on the record. Um, that that I am I'm concerned there with the opposition research file that I am all too aware of, and it is that opposition research file that was given to me by national conservative groups uh, who wanted to keep me out of that race, and they succeeded in keeping me out of the race because these are groups who wanted to support her and decided they could not uh, given that file. And I just I think that the voters of Northwest Georgia uh, would be doing themselves a favor by avoiding the the scenario of giving the left. Uh, giving the left the gold mine, um, put it to you that way. Now, uh, I want to go to the phones, to Clarksville, uh, to Richard. Welcome. Thanks for being patient. Hey, good Richard? day. Hi there. Can, hey, can, uh, I just want to tell you, you, you sort of made my day in three ways. Uh, the first and foremost is that, uh, the liability coverage. Uh, I wasn't aware that that was getting signed today, but I've got a hotel in Helen, which in the hospitality industry, we would get hammered if people decided they really wanted to start suing. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is the first. Uh, the second was I read your, your email today about the location for the announcement or for the uh, acceptance speech for president Trump. Mm -hmm. That is, that is, genius that's just amazing i love it well if and, you'll uh, do it we'll see <laughs> well i think you should take your recommendation for sure and uh last but not least uh the uh range training i think that's fantastic that's uh i think i'll get my try to get my whole family into it Oh yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, I, I you know, I, I would love to hang out with those of you who want to come. It is two, it is nine to five both days. It, it is a Saturday Sunday, and I, it, the more I hear from people who have gone through their training, the more excited I am to do it. Um, it, it just because because I, I mean, it's just it's it's I'm excited to go with professionals who've been in the military who give in depth training. And one of the things that I've heard, Richard, is that they don't just take you onto the course. They actually explain the physics of stuff of why should you load your gun in certain in a certain way? Why should you um, why should you clear it in certain ways? It, it just they, they do all sorts of stuff that goes above and beyond explaining not just the safety, but also the physics of, of why stuff certain matters. I'm excited for that kind of the aspect of it as well. Now, I, I got a question for you, Richard, before I let you go here, you, you say you own a hotel in, in Helena. I got to be honest with you. I went up to Clarksville for a Chamber of Commerce event a while back, and I drove through okay. Helen. I've lived in Georgia since 1993, and that is the only time I've ever been in Helen, and it looked like a fun place to go. And I hear they have a great chocolate shop, too, and I'm a big chocolate fan. But nonetheless, I, I've is, is it... Is it that much of a tourist trap, as some people say, or is it worth coming and hanging out and having a good German beer in Helen? 
Well, my family's uh, owned and run the, the hotel for 40, close to 45 years now. So wow. I basically grew up, I basically grew up there. And I would tell you, it's, it's a fun place to go. Uh, people who have a, have a, an eye to thinking places are tourist traps will think it's a tourist trap. Uh, but if you go and you actually take the time and you explore the, the entire area, that, I mean, you will find that Helen has so much to offer, plus the area has so much to offer. Well, it's a beautiful area. You know, my kids love to, I took my kids up to Blue Ridge a while back and we went tubing on the Tacoa and they loved it. I was afraid they wouldn't and they loved it. And I see that you can do that up in Helen. And I'm just thinking, you know, it's a little closer there than it is to Blue Ridge. We should go up and let the kids go tubing on the river. um, And and I can check out the chocolate shop. And then the schnitzel. I'm a sucker for good schnitzel and I hear they have it up there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we have a a good German restaurant right across from... uh, the hotel and uh so it's everything's within walking distance when you when you come into helen that is one big advantage that uh you can walk just about everywhere uh and, and we are getting good crowds uh up up there and up in helen so well uh, that, that's good to know so all right I, I'm, I'm i'm gonna have to come spend some time there I, I literally i'd never been my wife has talked about it several times and i just i had to be in clarksville for this event i drove up early uh, I didn't realize I was going to get there as early as I did. And so I just drove through hell and I, I didn't, didn't really stop. Um, other than I, I, my parents called. And so I had to pull over where I had a, a cell phone signal to be able to talk to them. But I, I really, I thought it was kind of cool. Um, so I want to get up there at some point. And so I figured I'd pick your brain on it and, and hopefully I'll see you at the gun range. Well, that would, that would be great. And, uh, I'll shoot an email and, and, uh, make sure you, uh, try to get you to stay at our place. Uh, well, yep. I, I'm. You, you won't have to twist my arm. I, I look. I appreciate the phone call very much. And uh, so Richard, he, he's he owns the place in Helen, but he's calling from Clarksville. I, I got to go up. So I went to a, a chamber of commerce event in Clarksville a while back, and uh, there was one one couple who does fly fishing. And I've got a buddy of mine. He's actually a photographer for Bass Pro and Cabela, and he wants to take me fly fishing. I've never been. Dick Cheney, uh, the former vice president, and Tucker Carlson have both pushed me hard to take up fly fishing. Uh, that they say it's meditative, and that I should I should do something meditative. I have a hard time turning my brain off. So it's very weird. Um, so you know, doing radio and, and Rush Limbaugh and I have talked about this before. Rush Rush's been a friend for a while, and, and he has very much the same problem where. My brain, once it gets started for the day, it, it doesn't stop. And I have a hard time falling asleep at night because I'm still thinking about stuff. And I'll wake up in the middle of the night. It's the craziest thing. I will wake up in the middle of the night. And whatever thought I had in my head when I fell asleep is still there. And the conversation in my head just continues on until I fall asleep again. And uh, I was talking to it's, it's this has been several years now uh, before he was on TV. Tucker and I were having breakfast together in Washington. It was right when he was launching the Daily Caller. And, and we got to talking about that. And he says, fly fishing. Do fly fishing. You're so focused on it, it, it turns your brain off. And then they've got the Unicoi Outfitters up in um, in Clarksville, and they gave me some uh, tackle. And so now this buddy of mine wants to take me out. I, I told him to, to go. I'll send him money, and he needs to go buy stuff for me. And we're going to go fly fishing and go up to North Georgia. Uh, he loves the Helen area, the Clarksville area, and the Lake Burton and Lake Rayburn area for fly fishing. I, I'm sure you people cared less. You couldn't care less about that, but it's my show. You can go get your own show if you don't. <laughs> I just, I love it up there. I had never been 
uh, up to northeast Georgia. I, I've I've always gone to northwest Georgia. I, I love Barnsley Gardens up in Adairsville. Uh, it is the my favorite place to go in the state. Uh, has always been Barnsley Gardens or Callaway because I, I golf. You know Callaway. They got the golf courses and stuff. Uh, and the Pine Mountain area is beautiful. Uh, but I went up to I stayed at a villa up at uh, Nick Saban's golf course at Lake Burton. A, a friend of a friend had one. I was having a hard time. They let me go up there and crash one weekend. I'm ready to go back. Um, I don't know that I can get back into the same place, but it was gorgeous. And downtown Clayton was amazing. And then I did this event in Clarksville. I had never been to Clarksville. And in Clarksville, you know, WCHM up in Clarksville was the first uh, station outside of Athens that picked up our show. And holy moly, uh, it was just, it was a great downtown, had a great time, uh, great food and great people. They, they've got fly fishing up there. And I'm just thinking all my worlds are colliding here. This is God's way of telling me I need to get up there and just sit there and just, just cast out. And, and and just that's what Tucker and, and, and the vice president were telling me. You just cast it. You go in your backyard and people are going to think you're crazy. And you just do this. And I'm thinking I could go catch fish. But you know what my problem is? Can I have a moment of honesty and candor with all of you? And y'all can hold this over my head for the rest of my life and you can pick on me. I'll let you. I'll tell you something incriminating against me that you, my audience who loves me, can pick on me for. I'm somewhat of a germaphobe. And I would need someone there with me to take the fish off the hook because I don't want to touch one of those things. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, I would go fishing. My dad and I, when I grew up in Dubai, we would go to Malaysia. Uh, there's a little island off the coast of Malaysia called Penang. I realize this sounds very unusual for you, but this is how I grew up. We lived in the Middle East, and every few months our visa had to be renewed, and my dad's company would say, go somewhere. So we'd go for a week, and we would wind up going to Penang, this little island off the coast of Malaysia. My dad and I would hire a fisherman, and he would take us out uh, to these little little coves, and we would do fishing. And you'd get blowfish, and you'd get get ocean fish coral around coral reefs and stuff. And I had no problem. I'd take the fish off. And, and then I've gotten older. I'm like, you know, this is kind of gross. It's slimy. Why do I want to do that? And now I'm like a germaphobe, and I got to – because now I've got a kid who wants to fish. I'm like, you know what, dude? you got to suck it up. You, you got to be willing to get your hands dirty. Like, listen, if I can get my hands dirty in other aspects, I I guess I can do this. But yeah, will somebody go take the fish off a hook for me? <laughs> well, there's some breaking news here you need to know about. The attorney general for the state of New York is suing the National Rifle Association. Uh, she is claiming that the uh, leaders of the company exploited the company for personal gain. Uh, it is, uh, you know, they've been coming for Wayne LaPierre for a while and they're actually, I, I, I need to be honest with you. I tend to not recommend that people support the national rifle association. I like, uh, gun owners of America better. I think gun owners of America is, is a, a better functioning organization right now. Uh, so Letitia James is the attorney general of New York. She's filed the lawsuit in the state court in Manhattan. Uh, they conducted an 18-month investigation and uh, document misspending and self-dealing arrangements uh, uh, regarding the NRA and Wayne LaPierre from hair and makeup for his wife to a $17 million post-employment contract for himself. Uh, these have, we, We've known this for a while, but there's also a whole lot of, um, there, there's a whole lot of, politicization happening here as well. I mean, they've been trying to get after the NRA for a while. And part of what they're trying to do is keep them on the sidelines for 2020. Uh, you know, the NRA in 2018 and the Chamber of Commerce did not really engage in the election. And thus far this year, the Chamber of Commerce has not engaged in the election.
and they're starting to get off the sidelines now. And when they do, they've got money to spend. And now with, with the rise of black voters owning guns, the NRA has an interesting message. Because, you know, uh, the NAACP was originally a very pro-gun organization. Uh, when when black Americans had to defend themselves in the Jim Crow era, in, in, in the Reconstruction era, uh, the NAACP was aggressively in favor of the Second Amendment. And the, the NRA has made... Uh, gun ownership is civil rights issue. They've got a message for black voters that not only do these uh, woke, rich, white atheists in the Democratic Party want to defund the police in their neighbor in your neighborhood, they also want to take away your right to defend yourself. You got to vote for Donald Trump to keep yourself safe. Now, that's a message that would make heads explode on the left. But I got to tell you, there are messages I, I have learned over the years. There are messages that make heads explode the talking heads and whatnot on TV, but that behind the scenes, actually people resonate with, uh, people pay attention to them uh, and, and people connect with them. There are ways to do that. And I think the president really can, he's got to stay focused though. And this, this is the singular frustration that his supporters have right now is the president lacks focus. His message changes, it seems like, every time he tweets, which is hourly, if not more than that, and he doesn't have a consistent thematic message. If he can make a consistent thematic message, the founding of this country in defense of our founding, and and acknowledge that, you know what, they didn't do everything right, but they provided us a framework by which we could improve on them. That's a message I think that resonates. It's a message that resonates with Hispanic immigrant voters who fled Central and South American kleptocracies and came to this country because they wanted a better life. It is a message I think that will resonate uh, with black families who want their children to have a better education and to live in safe neighborhoods uh, where the, the secular rich white people tell them your kid can't go to my kid's public school uh, because in the name of improving your own education, you must be stuck in a failing school and not come to my kid's school. And also you're not allowed to own a gun to protect yourself and you're not allowed to have police in your neighborhood because the police are bad. Uh, these are messages I think that could win people over. These are messages I think uh, that that uh, people could gravitate to. But the president's got to make a, a, a focused message here. The president's got to focus on this sort of stuff. If he will, if he goes to the if he goes to Yorktown or he goes to Old North Bridge where the revolution began, goes to Lexington or Concord, goes to Yorktown where the revolution ended, and he makes the case that we grabbed hold of our destiny here on this battlefield and we're not going to hand it over to a bunch of people who hate this country. Uh, man, I think he's got a compelling message. It builds on his message at, at Mount Rushmore, and it provides a theme for the final days of the campaign, and it's one I think a lot of people would re- resonate with. 